we are encouraged uh, that the average fatality rate continues to be low and steady. Wrong. You're lying, Mr. Vice President. Stop doing that, please. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, amongst others. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative Blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Coming up, we will be joined by a guest to explain why he believes, according to a recent opinion article that he wrote, that it is, quote, not just possible, but increasingly probable that Donald Trump could both lose the election and still remain president. Seriously. And uh, no, this is not some crackpot lefty or some, you know, from some alt news site trying to scare the hell out of all of us, even though that is what has happened. <laughs> it is very scary. Uh, but he's a former U.S. senator who has served in government since the Johnson administration, who also worked for Richard Nixon, writing about these this nightmarish scheme in Newsweek. So that former senator joins us shortly to explain. So for something uh, much less scary, let's talk about the deadly pandemic here for a bit in the U.S., (laughs) shall we? Oh, good Lord. Oh, I love my job these days. (laughs) Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, So, all right. Now, I hate to keep pounding on Florida's Republican Governor Rick DeSantis. But you got to do what you got to do. Uh, yeah, it's actually not true. I wish I didn't have to keep pounding on him is is really what it is. I, but I do because his irresponsible, obnoxious Trumpism, as many tried to tell him, including us for weeks on this program, is now costing very real lives of Americans. We have played this clip before. We will probably play it again as a reminder about how Republican governors like DeSantis and, and yes, Republican presidents like Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence are absolutely choosing knowingly to kill their constituents. 
by ignoring health experts in hopes that somehow it's going to improve Republican chances at the polls this November, even though it will not. I mean, it is just that simple. And it's as simple and, uh, yes, cynical, I guess, but that's it. That's what it is. If we didn't have an election coming up in 116 days, but who is counting? I'm certain that these idiots would not be acting as reckless as they are right now with the lives of fellow Americans in order to get some sort of short-term spike in otherwise dreadful economic numbers because, you know, they think that that would somehow lessen the likelihood of a blue tsunami that could wash over them this November 3rd. So, yeah, here's that clip again of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at the White House with Mike Pence by his side back in May, demanding an apology from those of us in the media who reported what actual health experts warned about his too early reopening of the Sunshine State just a couple of months ago. You got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Yeah, well, as it turns out, it has happened. It has happened now. Just as scientists warned that it would, Governor, and you've got blood on your hands. From AP today, fighting a surge in coronavirus cases in the spring, Florida appeared to be flattening the curve as theme parks shuttered, sugar sand beaches closed and residents heated orders to stay home. Now it's almost as if that never happened. Bars, restaurants and gyms began reopening in May. Yes, that clip of DeSantis, that was from May, May 20. Critics said it was too soon, says AP, and weeks later, the Sunshine State became one of the country's virus hotspots, experiencing an alarming surge in cases. On Thursday, officials reported 120 deaths in one single day from COVID, the highest number since the previous record of 113 back in early May. Dr. Jason Wilson, an ER physician at Tampa General Hospital, said during a conversation with Tampa's mayor, Jane Castor, uh, this week, we thought maybe we could keep this thing under wraps, but eventually it caught up to us. Yep, it did. From Miami to Tampa to Jacksonville, where the RNC still plans to hold its nominating convention for Donald Trump next month. Even though at least uh, five sitting Republican senators so far have said they ain't gonna go take part in that death trap. Uh, since then, uh, hospitals in uh, June and July have seen their numbers of coronavirus patients triple. Triple with new patients outpacing, outpacing those being discharged. That does not happen as Trump and DeSantis and Pence have been trying to gaslight people because there is more testing. It happens because there is more very sick people who require hospitalization, just as we've also been warning now for months on end. AP uh, reports a record 435 new hospitalized patients were reported Friday to have tested positive for the virus. More than 45% of intensive care units in Florida hospitals are now at capacity or had fewer than 10% of their beds available as of Friday. Hospital networks are scrambling to hire more health care workers to expand their COVID units. Last week, hospitals in several cities in Florida announced that they would again halt or reduce 
non-emergency procedures in order to free up space. Donald Trump, of course, is so worried about this situation in the state of Florida that he's headed down there on Friday for several campaign fundraisers. Hope he stays safe. Florida's predicament echoes that of other current hotspots, which also opened too early, reports AP. On Thursday, Texas, which is now marking its deadliest week of the pandemic, reported a record daily death toll of more than 100. A new high for hospitalizations for the 10th consecutive day and a nearly 16 percent positive test rate, its highest yet. Yes, that test rate keeps going up. That's the rate of tests that are coming back positive. Not just an increase in the number of tests leading to, you know, more positive tests, but an increase in the rates of those tests that are coming back positive. As uh, you know, they had been lying to you for weeks about, oh, well, it's just we have more cases because we're doing more testing. So that's what you have been lied to about for weeks, among other things, not on this show, but many other places, thanks to the false narrative that Republicans have been pushing. Remember, Sean Hannity on that same day, um, May 20, same day that DeSantis embarrassed himself by yelling at the media for reporting what scientists had warned. Florida got it right. Texas got it right. And guess what? Now it's time for all the states to follow their lead. We need to learn from the abject failures, meaning New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan. This is where we learn from the dumb ideas and the dumb policies that were made in the middle of Corona. Did they do it on purpose? No, I don't think they did it on purpose. Did they did it, do it because they're stupid? Yeah, that's a big part of the reason. And the mob and the media, by the way, you owe Governor DeSantis a huge apology. Oh, do we? Do we, Sean? Perhaps I missed the huge apology that you have since afforded to the mob and the media. Or you're just not reporting on the massive increases in hospitalizations and deaths now in Florida and Texas. Thanks to the Republican governors who did not get it right, they opened up too early. Of course, it wasn't just the Republican governors DeSantis in Florida and G Governor Greg Abbott in Texas who opened too soon. Republican Governor Doug Ducey in Arizona, he wanted uh, so much to please Donald Trump that by way of thanking him for coming to visit him in Arizona back in May, Ducey announced on that very same day that he would be reopening Arizona weeks earlier than planned. This past week in Arizona, hospitals were at nearly 90 percent capacity with a record 3,437 patients hospitalized as of Wednesday and a record number of those 575 on ventilators, according to health officials. Earlier in the week, a record high number of 871 patients filled ICU beds in Arizona. Chad Nielsen, the Infection Prevention Director for UF Health Jacksonville Hospital in Florida, anticipates the hospital will run out of rapid test kits in about two weeks or maybe sooner because manufacturers cannot keep up with demand. So great. No rapid test kits in Jacksonville, Florida in August when the city is set to host the Republican National Convention. Those are Definitely the type of people with the sort of foresight and concern for the general welfare of the public that you definitely want to elect to public office this year, aren't they? 
Those Republicans who would move their convention out of North Carolina because they wouldn't let them hold a, a, a maskless death rally up there. So they moved it down to Jacksonville where there are no more rapid tests. The rise in Florida hospitalizations comes as physicians and nurses have been working around the clock now for months during the summer, the hot summer, when facilities are typically low-staffed. Esther Segura, a nurse at Miami Jackson's South Medical Center, uh, said, we're just overwhelmed with patients right now. It's like all hands on deck. She said her and her colleagues are weary after four months working in the pandemic. Now we're just spiking all the way, she says. Every day the numbers keep surging. But don't worry, uh, Republicans like Mike Pence and those folks at Fox News and the others who are either pretending or actually gullible enough to believe this whole thing has been a hoax or a mountain out of a molehill or molehill, whatever they've been, you know, they've been demanding more apologies from the media of late because I guess we're not adequately covering the fact that while infections and hospitalizations are up, death rates are not rising at the same rate. That's a great success, according to Mike Pence, who says they've even been falling in many places. Of course, for the responsible journalist uh, to report that, you would also have to report that death rates are a lagging indicator to infection and hospital rates. But that's a really complex idea for these gullible wingnut loons who have been brainwashed for so many years. Difficult for them to understand that. So that lagging indicator, as uh, health experts had warned, the death rate, well, it is now catching up in uh, some of these states, some of these same states where they open too early. According to the L.A. Times today, soaring coronavirus infections in Texas, Arizona and Florida are pushing deaths from the disease back upward, reversing two months of declines and undercutting claims by the Trump administration that the pandemic is under control. In Texas, where hospitals are being swamped by a wave of COVID-19 patients, the seven-day average of deaths hit 46 a day this week. That is more than double the daily average in mid-June. The average death toll in Arizona has also more than doubled in the last month. And in Florida, hello, Ron DeSantis. Another state where infections are skyrocketing, the daily average of coronavirus-related deaths has jumped 60% in just the past two and a half weeks. I'm sure Hannity has been all over that statistic, right? Even while they're out there yelling at the media, the media, what the media isn't telling you is that death rates are going down. Are they? Apparently not. At least if you're, you know, concerned about things like facts and reality. We should be very concerned, said Dr. Eduardo Sanchez, a former Texas health commissioner and now serves as chief medical officer for prevention at the American Heart Association. And we should be thinking about what needs to be done to change this trend. Oh, I got an idea. Uh, let's hold a huge event inside an arena in one of the hottest hotspots in Florida to nominate the great Donald Trump for a second term. That'll change the trend, right? <laughs> it just did I mention how much I love my job lately? <laughs> well, 
With other uh, states across the uh, South and West wrestling with surging infections, public health officials, hospital leaders and experts are eyeing the trends with growing anxiety, fearful that they will see a reversal of what had been declining death tolls. Right. They were declining thanks to the lockdowns. And now they are rising again thanks to the reopening. This is not rocket science, but it is science. The trend is very upsetting, said Lisa McCormick, the associate dean at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, their school of public health. Alabama, where the number of new coronavirus cases has quadrupled since mid-May. Quadrupled. They have seen deaths hold relatively steady, but McCormick said few expect that pattern to hold. Correct, because as the infection rates go up, the death rates go up in return. Nationally, as we noted uh, earlier this past week, a new for, uh, new forecast from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington now predicts that the U.S. will record more than 200,000 deaths related to the coronavirus by November 1. That's up from about 130,000 deaths right now. So we've got at least another 70,000 Americans scheduled to die between now and Election Day because of the failure of this administration and its lackeys around the country to act responsibly. And, well, I, you know, at least Donald Trump is in Florida today for fundraisers, campaign fundraisers with rich Republicans. So it's not like he's doing nothing, right? <clears throat> Dr. Christopher Murray, director of the uh, Institute uh, at uh, the University of Washington, whose uh, disease models are closely followed worldwide, despite being very conservative. Uh, they've even been cited many times by the White House, so surely they know about this. They just don't care. Uh, Dr. Murray said we can now see the projected trajectory of the epidemic into the fall, and many states are expected to experience significant increases in cases and deaths. President Trump and others in his administration have repeatedly cited the overall downward trend in fatalities to argue that it is safe to reopen businesses and schools. Look, deaths are going down. Vice President Mike Pence told reporters on Wednesday, on Wednesday, he, quote, we are encouraged that the average fatality rate continues to be low and steady. That, as he, uh, as administration officials, uh, urged schools across the country to allow students back in the classrooms this fall, beginning next month. It is quite a mind-blowing statement for the vice president to say that they are encouraged by a steady mass death rate. Quite the campaign slogan. You know, uh, I have uh, a subscription to the L.A. Times. Maybe the administration, they don't have that. Maybe they can't afford that. They can't afford to read this information in the LA Times because <laughs> the they don't have a subscription. Dr. David Lakey, chief medical officer at the University of Texas Healthcare System and others noted that the steep increase in patients being hospitalized now with COVID-19 suggests that larger fatality numbers are likely coming in uh, in the next few weeks. 
This week, there are nearly 10,000 COVID patients in Texas hospitals, 10,000, according to state data, in the hospital. Not infected, but in the hospital. That is more than triple from the total just three weeks ago. The widespread socializing that occurred when the governors of Texas, Florida, Arizona and other states began loosening restrictions in the spring is only now starting to be reflected in the death rates, reports the L.A. Times. Uh, As I have to say it, but as we have been warning for all of those weeks, specifically about Texas and Arizona and Florida, Meanwhile, Tennessee's uh, daily deaths have been gradually trending up since the end of May when the governor issued an executive order allowing groups of up to 50 people to participate in social and recreational activities. Who could have predicted that would be a problem? Of course, I know many Americans still believe in American exceptionalism. Well, it is certainly on display right now. The widespread rise in infections and increasing death tallies distinguish the U.S. from most wealthy nations in Europe and East Asia that have much more uh, been uh, much more successfully managed the pandemic, bringing their infection and death rates way down very nearly uh, where they were before the outbreak. But not the U.S. because we're exceptional. Many of these countries were uh, more careful about reopening businesses after the virus first hit this spring, according to The Times. But uh, they report, don't worry, the U.S. experience is not unique. According to Ali Mokhtad, an epidemiologist at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, who spent two decades at the CDC, uh, he, he notes that Iran, which suffered one of the worst coronavirus outbreaks this spring, similarly locked down, but then also... Prematurely relaxed restrictions, according to Mokdad, allowing infections and deaths to spring back. This week, the country of Iran recorded its highest number of COVID fatalities since February. Cool. We're just like Iran. Well done, Mr. President. You nailed it. Mukdad says uh, we were lulled into a false sense of security here. People let down their guard, and I'm very concerned the message is now coming out that we can be reassured and just reopen schools. Because, you know, that's the message. That is the message that both Trump and Pence and, yes, DeSantis have been putting out this entire past week. Schools must be reopened next month and if they are not pressure will be applied to force them to do so including the withholding of federal funds the deportation of foreign exchange students who are attending schools who do not agree to have in-person classes open up five days a week Muqtad uh, warned we are headed in the wrong direction and so do we we warn that as well And so we have been warning that as well. And I am sorry about that because I suspect that it gets exhausting and not really very fun to hear. I I know I do not enjoy doing it, repeating these warnings, sharing these actual facts. I really don't. I don't like doing it, but I feel like if I don't, I feel like I might be responsible for someone unnecessarily dying. And I have trouble with that, maybe because I have a conscience. Unlike people like Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Rick DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis and uh, Sean Hannity, who are even now continuing their 
COVID-19 death march for tens of thousands of Americans, despite all of these warnings, because they think that somehow this is going to help them get reelected and stay in power. They are wrong. At least I hope that they are wrong. While we have spent months warning you about exactly where we are today in regard to the COVID virus, I'm really hoping that the warning uh, that we have for you in the next segment here on the broadcast, when I'm joined by a former U.S. senator, I really hope that warning does not uh, come to pass. It regards the presidential election in just over 100 days and how, if this former senator is correct, Donald Trump could both lose the election, not just the popular vote, but even the electoral college vote, and still be allowed to stay in office, and it would all be perfectly lawful. Seriously. Because I guess we need to have the scariest show ever today, (laughs) right? Sorry, that's what you get from the reality-based media outlets. My apologies. Buckle up. That story with Senator Tim Worth is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. Now they're planning the crime of the century. Well, what will it be? Well, we'll tell you what it will be. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Former Colorado Senator Timothy Worth and Newsweek editor-at-large Tom Rogers freaked out, uh, well, really scared the hell out of more than just a few folks a week or so ago, just before the 4th of July holiday, with a short article in Newsweek headlined, How Trump Could Lose the Election and Still Remain President. It begins this way. It is increasingly looking as if Joe Biden can beat President Donald Trump in November. The president seems more and more out of step with the national mood from his handling of the pandemic to his response to racially biased policing, not to mention a wide array of other issues, even in key swing states. Donald Trump is losing ground that will be difficult for him to make up. For Trump, there are, however, two broad pathways to maintaining power. First, We can already see very clearly a strategy designed to suppress voter turnout with the purging of registration rolls of large numbers of mostly urban voters, efforts to suppress mail-in ballots, which are more necessary than ever given COVID-19. Of course, as we on this program have been reporting on the uh, huge con that Donald Trump and his wildly corrupt Attorney General Bill Barr are hoping to pull off by convincing voters that absentee ballots are all fraudulent, even though Donald Trump himself voted unlawfully by absentee ballot in Florida earlier this year where he has no permanent legal domicile for voting purposes. But I digress. Back to Worth and uh, Rogers here in Newsweek. The Trump campaign has a re-election apparatus that is training 50,000 poll watchers for the purpose of challenging citizens' right to vote on Election Day and significant efforts 
to make in-person voting in urban areas as cumbersome as possible in order to have long lines that discourage people from exercising their voting rights. That's one of the two pathways that Worth and Rogers see as a potential path to maintaining power and all of it we have been covering in, in some detail for many months here on the broadcast. But as to the second pathway they write, the second pathway to subverting the election is even more ominous. But we must be cognizant of it because Trump is already laying the groundwork for how he can lose the popular vote and even lose in the key swing states necessary for an electoral college victory, but still remain president. Seriously? Really? Well, that seems impossible, at least until you read their clearly explained 12-step process by which, if all of his cards line up, Trump actually could manage to, if you will, steal the election in plain sight. Lawfully, sort of. With some assistance from the stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court and help from Republicans in Congress to seal the deal. While the scenario that the two men spell out seems something straight out of a dystopian political fiction novel akin to the Philip Roth book recently made into an HBO miniseries called The Plot Against America, Worth and Rogers at Newsweek argue that this scenario is plausible enough that they felt the need to write this opinion piece in Newsweek and they uh, end it with this warning. There needs to be an outpouring at all levels of society that this, uh, this scheme that they lay out will not be tolerated from government officials and lawmakers at all levels to civic associations and civil rights groups to business groups and trade associations who have to recognize the economic chaos that would result from this kind of coup to lawyers, academics and student groups practiced in resisting government policies and, of course, to the editorial voices of the press, both local and national. Well, consider it done, gentlemen. Here we go. Joining us now to help us with that outpouring and to help explain this uh, kind of sort of actually lawful coup that could keep Donald Trump in office, even if he loses is one of the two co-authors of that Newsweek piece. Tim Wirth is a former U.S. senator and congressman from Colorado with a long and distinguished career. He served in the Johnson White House and as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Education in the Nixon administration. Then as a Colorado congressman from 1975 to 1987 when he was elected to the U.S. Senate, where he focused a great deal on environmental issues. Thank you, sir. He also went on to serve as national co-chair for the Clinton-Gore campaign, and from 1993 to 97, Senator Worth served in the U.S. Department of State as the first undersecretary for global affairs. Apparently, he couldn't hold a job. And as if that's not enough, as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science, uh, Sciences, he was recently honored as a champion of the Earth, by the United Nations Environment Program. Senator Worth, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Well, Brad, you've got it all there. I don't have to say anything. I'll just leave it to you. No, I actually, I think you do, because you're going to have to explain these 12 steps, which I left out. Uh, but uh, before we get there, uh, congratulations 
on scaring the hell out of even me uh, a week or so ago when I first read this article. Before we get to the, those 12 steps uh, and the details, have you received yet the outpouring of concern from all of the levels that you cited that you feel need to be aware of the possibility of this uh, sort of scheme by this president and his uh, lackeys and apparatchik who would be needed to pull it off? I'll put it this way, Brad. People are starting to wake up to the possibility that... Uh uh, if uh, Vice President Biden wins and wins big, that still uh, is no guarantee that Trump's going to leave the White House. I think that uh, if you look at Trump and just what we've learned in the last three and a half years, uh, this is a man who, who uh, uh, is absolutely deathly afraid of the word loser. That's the mm. way I put it, the yep. big good loser. And he uh, does not want to go down in history as the biggest loser in American political history. And he will do everything he possibly can to avoid that and to stay in office. Mm. And we've seen that uh, in this government, uh, which is based upon a lot of norms and protocols that people agree that this is a certain way of doing things, he's made it very clear that he doesn't understand these and he doesn't agree with them anyway. Even if he understood them, he's going to do what he wants to do. And it's those, uh, it's those norms and protocols that make transitions within our government work. Well, you know the reason that uh, so that uh, and if he's not going to uh, if he doesn't go along with those, which I think is very clear, he hasn't gone along with any other ones. Uh, then we got real troubles ahead. Well, you know, I've I've heard people, I've heard the concerns that oh, even if he even if he loses, he's not going to leave. And I I have personally felt that that's somewhat overblown. In that I really actually don't think the military. Uh, would go along with that sort of thing. I, I believe that he would be removed. But you, you and uh, uh, Tim, uh, Tom Rogers here actually point out a scenario that is somewhat different than the idea that, well, I lost, but I'm going to stay here anyway. You actually point out a way that this could be legalized, if you will. And you yeah. note that he uh, actually tweeted in advance, sort of setting up for this. Uh, he, he tweeted on June 22nd, quote, rigged 2020 election. Millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times. And with this, you write, Trump has begun to lay the groundwork for the step-by-step uh, -step process by which he holds on to the presidency after he has clearly lost the election. So let's, okay, well, let's walk through this. To, yeah. Let's go back to the two pathways that okay. you started yeah, and you read about right at the top. There right. is a, there's a pathway around uh, November uh, that uh, is consuming the time and effort of almost all the pundits thinking about this, and mm -hmm. that is uh, the electoral one. Uh, what happens in, uh, in the election? Uh, will there be a lot of mail-in ballot balloting? Uh, how will this uh, go down in uh, the the six or seven key states, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Arizona, Florida. Uh, what, what's going to happen there? Will they be able then uh, to count the ballots? And uh, if they can count the ballots, um, uh, will they, will, how will that counting come out? Mm -hmm. Who's going to do that counting? Uh, what's the, what, if, what if there isn't uh, a majority of, of, uh, of uh, electoral votes, and it goes to the electoral college in December, and uh, and it's uh, it's stuck, it's stuck, and there isn't a majority, and we we then have to follow the very uh, 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 tortured procedure that's uh, laid out in part in the Constitution. This is the electoral pathway, mm -hmm. and uh, there are lots and lots of ways in which he can disrupt the election, uh, in which he can create uh, very significant electoral chaos, 
both at the at the ballot box in these uh, key states and uh, in the process of recounting. But there's another, the second pathway, which mm-hmm. we think is, uh, you know, equally if not more dangerous, is the suite of very powerful emergency powers which the president has. He is uh, effectively under Article 2 of the Constitution. He can do practically anything that he wants to do. Mm. Uh, There are no constraints on his use of these emergency powers, which were first began to be granted to him about the time of the Eisenhower administration Mm -hmm. and concerns about a nuclear attack and what would happen to the government at that point and who would be in charge. And that uh, then grew into concerns about what happened during a, uh, a biological attack or, or a chemical attack. And that, in turn, emergency powers were developed, uh, what happens in terms of terrorism, and then uh, what happens in terms of a massive health care epidemic. Uh, the president is given, in all of these situations, very serious uh, emergency powers. And there, there is no, uh, there's no review of these powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Congress uh, actually knows very little about them. They are in statute, uh, but uh, they are held by the Justice Department and by the White House. Uh, the Congress has had uh, little or no uh, attention to these. They have not heard hearings about them. They don't know what's in these emergency powers. They've not reviewed them. And uh, that's a really dereliction, that we think, on the part mm-hmm. of the Congress. And one of the antidotes to all of this is for the Congress to be begin to address these issues in each of the various of the committees of the House, particularly mm-hmm. where they have the ability to hold those hearings. They control the, uh, they control the hearing agenda and can certainly have uh, hearings on what these powers are. The Trump, Trump has no constraints on these. The Congress doesn't have any authority to check these powers. Mm-hmm. People can say, well, it would go to court. Well, who's going to take them? Who's going who's to take it to court? Uh, Barr, the attorney general? Are they going to are they going to uh, challenge uh, what uh, Trump says he's going to do? Well, and even if they do challenge it, would this be like Andrew Jackson in the in the 1830s, when uh, the people came to him and said, "Oh, by the way, the Supreme Court justice has said that you can no longer uh, uh, move the Cherokees west." And uh, Andrew Jackson said, "Well, that's fine. If the uh, uh, Chief Justice has an army. Uh, let him yes. come and tell me what to do. You, you, and what army? Well, let's let's step through how those uh, emergency powers might be invoked here. The scenario uh, where you write that uh, Biden ends up winning uh, in the popular vote and in essentially in the electoral states in key swing states like Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, but then he declares uh, the, the election was rigged and invokes the emergency powers at that time to stop the counting. Do, do I understand it correctly? This is that's, before that's the... Certainly, yeah. That's certainly one of the things that he can do. He can say under his emergency health powers, these uh, uh, ballots were all infected by the COVID and uh, they... They shouldn't have been cast and can't be cast, and the people who counted them, uh, uh, you know, weren't legitimate counters. Whatever he might decide mm-hmm. uh, are the grounds to declare that uh, of the counting that's gone on in these uh, uh, of the electoral votes isn't valid, and or that the uh, majorities that are reported back by in the state of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, reported back by the state legislature, which is Republican are different from the uh, votes reported back by the governor, who's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And it goes, to the, uh, it goes to the Electoral College, and they meet in December and can't decide. Then what happens? So that's, uh, 
that's uh, what happened in 1876. And it, it went, went to the Electoral College. They tied. They couldn't decide what to do. And that's when they eventually cut the deal between Rutherford B. Hayes. And, and uh, uh, he became president in return for uh, giving away Reconstruction uh, across the South. I mean, very, very mm-hmm. important decision that was made at that point. But that was the way that they broke the, broke the tie right. uh, in 1876. Now there's a tie now yeah. under the law, under the uh, current legislation, uh, under that current legislation, if there's a tie now, ultimately it goes to a vote of the uh, House of uh, uh, the delegations in the mm-hmm. House of Representatives. And that's not uh, anything but one vote for every state. Wyoming has a vote. California has a vote. They're all the same. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the votes then of the House of Representatives, there are currently 26 uh, houses that are uh, Republican-controlled, 24 that are democratically controlled. If there were a vote like that in the House today, uh, uh, they would most certainly be voting for Trump. Now, the most so. sort of insidious part of this, uh, as I read it, is that you can have uh, a, a number of states. In other words, it's not an actual tie in the Electoral College, but it becomes either a tie or just an outright uh, victory for Donald Trump if he is able to essentially uh, 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 declare an emergency in these uh, various states that have to be investigated because we're not sure if the counts are legitimate. And ultimately, what happens is it goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says if you can't uh, come up with it, as we saw them do in uh, uh, Bush v. Gore back in 2000, if you can't come up with an electoral win- uh, college winner, in your state, then that state will simply not be included in the ultimate uh, electoral college count, correct? So we would just remove a number of states because there's an ongoing emergency, an investigation that can't get completed by the time the college meets, and that's how we end up with a tie or even a Trump victory, even in a, in a case where Biden has literally received more votes uh, in the electoral college otherwise. Well, that's part of the complexity that we're facing. It's a real, uh, potentially, I think, a major constitutional crisis. And uh, uh, so we then have to say to ourselves, we can un- try to unravel this some more. It's, it's very, very complicated, and uh, lawyers have spent uh, more than 100 years trying to figure this out. Uh, and, you know, in the 1880s, uh, the Congress tried to unravel what would happen and really made a mess of it in the legislation. And then since then... Uh, have been able to, to uh, not been able uh, to sort through a clear set of procedures as to what happens if, what if, what if, what if. Uh, so we're stuck with what we have now. Yeah. And we're stuck with this threat, it seems to us, uh, which is a very real threat. And uh, our, our belief is it's no longer possible that uh, Trump's going to make this kind of a challenge, but it's highly probable. Yeah. Uh, if you... If you uh, Assume, as we do, that, again, going back to where we started, he'll do anything he possibly can uh, to stay in power. Yeah, when you say so it's then the, not just possible, but increasingly probable, uh, that's what I wanted to ask you. Why, why do you feel that way uh, at well, this point? Well, the more, the more you know, the worse it is. Uh, <laughs> if you look, the more you know about these emergency powers, the more you uh, sketch out what he may do. Uh, the more you see what he's doing in all of these swing states and how they're trying to discourage the, uh, the vote by mail and how uh, you know he's making all kinds of wild statements about uh, uh, how corrupt the, the electoral voting would be uh, if it's conducted by mail. I mean, he's really obviously on a full, all-out attack against uh, um, uh, 
uh, voting by mail. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that now. That's in their, the data that's out there. We know that the uh, president is uh, moving rapidly to put in a uh, different kind of civilian leadership at the Pentagon. Now, why is he doing that? Uh, you know, what's the reason for that at this late time of, of the administration? You know, we know that he's uh, taken over the Voice of America and all of the various uh, uh, broadcasting entities mm-hmm. that exist there. Why is he doing that at this late date? Mm-hmm. We know that he has very sh- and significant powers under the Communications Act of 1934, uh, in which he has the opportunity to make major inroads, uh, if not shut down altogether, the Internet upon which uh, so much of the, of the country depends. So the more you look at this and the more you begin to think it, think it through, you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, it would really take a failure of imagination not to begin to think that this is not, as you're suggesting, not just possible, but mm-hmm. probable. Let's I, connect the dots. Let's look, connect all of these dots together and see what's going on and say, as, as, as we do, that uh, the president and the attorney general and their, min- and their minions are bent upon uh, staying in office at all costs. It is chilling, and I would, uh, I'll would i add one sort of variation to your scenario, or perhaps a nuance, uh, in your 12-step nightmare plan that you spell out at Newsweek, Senator. Uh, Trump, as you note, you know, has been busy discrediting vote-by-mail, and the Washington Post recently reported that Republican voters are listening to him, increasingly planning to not vote by mail, uh, but at you know, in person at the polls, where Democrats are planning to vote more by mail in larger numbers. Well, in-person polling place results are generally reported on election night, whereas absentee results can take several days or even weeks to come in. I could see a scenario where some of these uh, swing states with, you know, heavy in-person Republican votes actually go for Trump on Election Day, but then flip to Biden in the weeks thereafter, after the, you know, vote-by-mail ballots come in and are tallied. Uh, And and I would see that as uh, absolutely leading to Trump declaring those states have been stolen from him. Just, you know, we saw something like that just in 2018 in California, where he tried to make that claim that California was stealing these uh, four congressional seats from uh, Republicans. Yeah, what you're talking about is the so-called blue wave phenomena that occurs in many cases with absentee ballots that, uh, again, uh, uh, Red votes tend to come in more uh, during the day of voting, and and blue blue votes mm-hmm. uh, absentee t- tend to be more absentee. Mm-hmm. So when the blue when the blue votes or the absentee votes get counted, uh, you have a swing. I think that happened in a congressional district in Arizona. That mm-hmm. on election night in 2018, the Republican had been declared a victor, but uh, or they said they were ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then when all the absentees came in, it, it turned out that the Democrat won. That's what's called the blue wave mm-hmm. phenomenon. So people are thinking about that. You're absolutely right, and uh, you know that's one of the that's that's one of the many uh, variables in all of this that we have to be aware of. I'm speaking with but the, but the next point yeah. that has to we have to really go at now a little bit. I think is very very important. Uh, to do, Brad, and that's to talk about what we do about this. Right, and that's what I want to get to. I'm speaking with Senator Tim Wirth, uh, former uh, U.S. Senator from Colorado, uh, be, and and along with what we do about this, uh, Senator, do you feel confident, given the way that the Supreme Court has decided a bunch of cases in, in recent days, uh, that they, and uh, I'm thinking of John Roberts here, w- would they actually go along with this sort of, because tra- they would be needed here, I think, to go along with this uh, pretty transparent scheme to essentially steal the presidency in plain sight? 
well, tell me this: how, uh, who's going to bring the uh, who's going to bring the suit to this? Get it to the Supreme Court? You and me, and Senator, to through the district <laughs> court and through the uh, Court of Appeals, and then to the Supreme Court. And yep. you've got an Attorney General sitting there with and uh, various orders coming from the president. He can legitimize and say these are perfectly all right. And, the, and you can imagine the scenario where the court looks at this and says these orders from the president are perfectly legal. Yep. And, uh, and they stand aside, which they have historically done when it came to voting mm. and it came to, to, uh, to issues surrounding voting. Uh, Supreme Court has stood aside. So timing is one thing, probably the most important. And I think the predilections of the court are generally... Uh, uh, not to become involved, standing aloof from all of this sort of thing. Okay, so what can we, the people, do here and now to somehow help avoid this uh, nightmare scenario from playing out in reality? Well, what we call it is we have to all together build a, a, an extraordinarily large and powerful, what we call a citizen's firewall, a firewall against this happening, since there are no formal, uh, there are no formal guardrails on the president. Uh, there, there are none in the law. The Senate obviously is not going to do anything. We won't, wouldn't count on the court. So it has to be a, uh, uh, an, a very, very broad public uprising of governors and attorneys general and secretaries of state, uh, people at all levels of government across the country being aware of what's, what uh, may be happening and uh, beginning to gird themselves for this. Uh, it's businesses and industry, you know, that uh, businesses have to be very acute to the chaos that may be coming. And their responsibility, they are, they are under the law, corporations, they're individuals too, as you'll remember what the Supreme Court said. These corporations have a responsibility. I don't know if you've seen recently James Carville and, and uh, talking about the vote in Georgia. Carville says, you know, what's wrong with uh, Coca-Cola and what's wrong with Delta Airlines? Why do they let this kind of voting occur in, in, in Georgia? You know, I can just as easily buy Pepsi-Cola or I can fly on American Airlines. they got to get after these corporations. They've got a stake in this, too. Well, that's true, and the Chambers of Commerce have a stake in the, and the uh, Business Roundtable and, you know, all the very, very significantly important business uh, organizations have to say, well, we don't, we are anticipating that this may happen, and we want our people to know and talk about it and, and think about it. Uh, that that's something that universities have to be doing and student groups have to be doing. And, of course, uh, the press in every way, shape, and form has to be doing. The press has generally been, been have been bystanders. They will mm. make the argument, oh, we can't get involved in something partisan. You know, oh, we have to be nonpartisan. We have to be balanced. Well, this is not a matter of being balanced or not partisan. Mm -hmm. This is a matter of the survival of our democracy and the, the way in which our electoral system works. And the press has to be attentive to that and be thinking about that and doing the analysis of what this is. It doesn't have to mean that they're saying that they're for Trump or they're not for Trump or whatever. It's just that there is a danger in our system and we have to uh, uh, build public, public attention to this so that uh, it doesn't happen. And finally, this has to be done early on. It, we can't wait until uh, the middle of October or early November to kind of ring the alarm bells. Mm -hmm. The alarm bells, in our opinion, have to go off now, and that's why uh, you know, we're feeling a little bit like an early Paul Revere or whatever. You know, we're mm -hmm. raising the alarm, and, and uh, the problems are coming, and let's everybody be thinking about them and working on them and talking about that together, which is, you know, again, why I was so pleased to uh, be able to join you on your program and talk about it, because people have to talk about it and think about it and understand that uh, you know, this, is, this is not... Uh, 
uh, uh, politicians gaming, and this is not a uh, uh, just a possibility, uh, but something that uh, is or could be a real probability, and we should be alert to it and uh, aware of it and thinking about it and talking about it and building the firewall against it. You're right. It's not a partisan issue. It is an American issue, and we are happy to join you uh, in that fight, sir. Uh, happy to join your citizens' firewall uh, and and talk about this. Get the word out, and we will, of course, link to your article over at Newsweek, How Trump Could Lose the Election and Still Remain President. Senator, I hope and you'll... I'll send uh, you. We did, a long, yeah. we did a long piece in Politico, too, which mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send to you okay. and a couple of other things, so you can have those on hand as you're talking to your... Uh, listeners and and uh, as we all think about what has to be done over the next three months. Uh, yes, please do send that information. Let us know how we can help to continue getting this word out. Thank you for what you're doing here. And by the way, for your work on climate as well. I know you work with the UN on that, and I hope you'll come back and join us again to discuss that nightmare once this current one is uh, beyond, once we're hopefully yeah, beyond like this a, current one. Everything happens at once, you know. We used to think that uh, the plague is coming. Well, the plague is on us. Now we've got the locusts are heading, and heading our way. Tell too. me oh, about man. it. Literally, yeah. unfortunately. Senator Tim Worthy is former Democratic congressman and U.S. Senator from Colorado and still fighting to save the world. Thank you, Senator. Hope we uh, get to talk to you again in the near future. Talk to you soon. Thanks for, thanks for asking me to join you. You bet. Our honor, Senator. All right, quick break, and we are back. Uh, Desi Doyen, uh, you know what we, we need, what the whole world needs right now? <laughs> what? A little Randy Rainbow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Quick break. Good. We're back with that right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Wait, we don't have what? time for that. <laughs> we don't have time for this sort of uh, frivolity. <laughs> we need uh, we need to leave here with a smile, uh, tapping our toes and uh, clicking our heels. And so for that, we turn to our friend Randy Rainbow. Again, oh, we had the strongest economy in the world. Girl. Uh, did you have one in the back? Yeah, please. Thank you. Mr. President, COVID cases continue to rise around the country. You said in your last stand-up special that you had <laughs> asked your people to slow down testing in order to make the numbers look better, which, by the way, is f***ing brilliant. Uh, you're also not requiring people to wear masks at your rallies, which... Well, that doesn't matter. Nobody goes to those anyway. But don't you think you should be following CDC guidelines and leading by example? They're not mandatory guidelines. They're guidelines. They suggest you could wear them. Huh? Most people can just make something out of a certain material. Uh, I won't be doing it personally. You're looking awful grouchy. Cover your freaking face. Listen to Dr. Fauci. Cover your freaking face. Don't wait around for herd immunity, you reckless thug. And what a golden opportunity to hide that mug. Although you should require us to do what's right to do. You're siding with the virus, cause you're a virus too. So burn. 
back up, girl. Don't get in my space and cover your freaking face. I don't see it for myself. I just know. Uh... If you're feeling fancy or on your way to prom, why not be more like Nancy? Make it a whole ensemble. Just tie up your face with a bandana, please. It's not taboo. Think of your poor old ailing Nana, she's counting on you not to kill her. Please don't politicize it. Don't be a pox like pet. Don't sit and scrutinize it. It's only common sense. Don't spread droplets all over the place. Ew. Cover your freaking face. You can do it, you don't have to do it. I'm choosing not to do it. Da -da -dum, da -dum -dum. Dance break. <laughs> The same way testing less would make COVID just quit. Maybe if we can't see your mouth, you won't say stupid. <laughs> huh? Don't thumb your nose at science. You'll find it doesn't work. Ooh, knock off that non-compliance. Don't be a selfish jerk. Just stop drooling and slow down the pace. Just cover your freaking face. Wearing a face mask, I don't see it for myself. Cover your freaking face. I'm choosing not to do it. Girl, just put a paper bag over that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I really needed that. Thank you very much, Desi Doy, and our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, including our interview today with former Colorado U.S. Senator Tim Wirth, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com to share with and scare the hell out of your friends, families, neighbors, and mortal enemies. Uh, that is uh, free to you at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me there at simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Cover your freaking face. I'm choosing not to do it. Girl, just put a paper bag over that thing.